Hebrews 12:18 is where we will be studying this morning. 12:18. We'll read down to the end of this chapter. We're kind of jumping into the middle of a of an argument that he's making, and, and I'll explain that. We'll just we'll just dive on in to uh, God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. So let's stand together in reverence for God's word, if you're able. And hear what the Lord has to say to us this morning. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us today. You may be seated. Well, it is uh, about to be football season, and if you are a football fan like I am, and you have your favorite team, uh, you're tempted to be consumed with internet reports about the progress of the team, especially my team has a new coach and a new system, and, and it's all fresh and new, and we're eager to see the finished product on the field. And I got to thinking about football, probably more than I should, uh, and I thought, you know, since the writer of Hebrews, especially chapter, uh, beginning here of chapter 12, uses some athletic metaphors, talking about running the race with endurance and so forth, that this was a good metaphor for us today, since I know many of you are football fans as well, and sports fans in general. But this one observation that you've probably seen and and you know, and, and of course uh, we've heard announcers say it, say it that, that, that they'll say the team has quit. You know, a team is just getting uh, just completely obliterated by their opponent, and it's like they're offering no resistance at all. They're just going through the motions. And of course, last year when COVID hit, right before football season, or once we got to football season, a few months later, uh, some players just quit altogether. They didn't play the game at all. 
And I thought this was a good metaphor for the Christian life and particularly what the writer of Hebrews is saying to his audience because some of them were tempted to quit altogether, to quit Christianity altogether and to go back to Judaism. Others were still playing the game, but in all honesty, they were quitting. They weren't really exerting. He talks about them drifting and really not paying close attention to the things that they had been taught. They were losing the game. They were very discouraged. I mentioned last week that when I played football in high school, we were terrible. I mean, we were so bad. We, I played for three years on the varsity. We won two games in three years. And we had, at one point in my three-year career, we had a 15-game losing streak. And 12 straight games, we did not score. 12 straight shutouts. That's bad. And my high school went on after I graduated. They, they topped that with a 36-game losing streak. So historically bad football. Thankfully, my high school is no longer there. Uh, they joined with the rival high school down the road, and the first year they went to the playoffs. So combined forces seemed to do a little bit better, but we were so bad, and it was easy to be discouraged and to just go through the motions. I know that I wasn't uh, a major player, uh, kind of played hit and miss, and, and I really wasn't into it all that much. How can you be when you're getting beat up so bad all the time? So you can give up on the Christian life while still playing the game. And so that's the concern here today. Are we really engaged in the Christian life and, and walking with the Lord on a, on a daily basis? Now, the section that we've just read begins with the word for in verse 18. So as I said before, we're jumping into the middle of an argument that he's making. And this for indicates that he's about to give us a reason for the exhortation that he's given before, particularly in verses 12 through 17. And, and what he's told them there is to endure in the faith, to sum it up. He wants them to endure in the faith, and now he's giving us reasons we should. And here in verse 18, he is in essence answering some hypothetical questions. Why should you lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet? Why should you strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord? Why is it so important that you obtain the grace of God instead of being a bitter root that causes others to be discouraged? Why shouldn't you just give in to sensuality, just doing what feels good and easy? And specifically for these people to whom he was writing in, in the biblical times, why not just go back to Judaism, which was much easier than Christianity? Why not take the path of least resistance? Why should you strive and endure and put sin to death and suffer for being a Christian? Why shouldn't you just give in to the flesh and, and give up? Well, the verses we're looking at provide us with an answer. And I got two Two points today. The first point is that Christians are not under the law. Christians are not under the law. And the second point is Christians have come 
to Mount Zion, etc., because it gives us a whole list of reasons there, positive reasons. So there's kind of a negative side and a positive side to his argument. So first we see here that Christians are not under the law. In verses 18 to 24, uh, the writer of Hebrews is contrasting the Mosaic covenant, or what we call the covenant of law, the old covenant, with the new covenant. Moses, during the Exodus at Mount Sinai, received the law. He was the mediator uh, for the Israelites between between them and God. And Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant that he ushered in. And the writer here is contrasting these two covenants metaphorically by referring to two mountains. Mount Sinai, which he doesn't mention by name, but the events that he's talking about in 18 uh, through 21 are talking about the events that happened at Mount Sinai. He's contrasting that with Mount Zion. Mount Zion, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But verses 18 through 21 refer to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Uh, if you don't know the biblical history, the Israelites uh, had, had become uh, a great numeral, numeric, great, greatly numeric, I'm going to say that right, they grew in numbers <laughs> when they went to Egypt. After Joseph was there, there was a famine in the land, his family moved to Egypt and so their, their numbers exploded. The Pharaoh got nervous about it. He put them in bondage, and then he started trying to put all their, their, their baby boys to death so that the, their numbers would be checked. And so Moses led them out of Egypt. And, of course, you had the parting of the Red Sea, and Moses led the people uh, towards the Promised Land. And on the way, they end up at Mount Sinai, and God reveals himself to them in a very powerful way there, and he gives them his law, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And here's what God instructs Moses to tell to the Israelites. You shall set limits, this is from Exodus 19, you shall set limits for the people all around, this is Mount Sinai, all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Then it goes on in verses 16 through 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Sorry. So there was this display, terrifying display there on Mount Sinai. 
Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So we see here, when the law was given at Sinai, fear and terror ruled, and the mountain was covered with smoke and fire, and there were lightning crashes and loud thunder, and the ground was shaking. And when God spoke, the people trembled. And they were so afraid of God that they did not want to hear his voice anymore. They asked Moses to go and speak to God and relate it back to them. God's power and holiness frightened them because they were unholy and powerless before this mighty God. And Moses told them, this is God's revealing himself to you so that you will have a, a reverence, a fear of him, and you won't sin. But they did sin. <clears throat> they didn't want to hear God's voice anymore. They, they did, wanted to, uh, for Moses to hear the voice and relate it to them. And they eventually, as time went on, listened less and less to God. They refused to listen. And they fell further and further into sin until they were kicked out of the promised land that they were going to. Now, why is the writer of Hebrews taking us back to this scene, this terrible, awe-inspiring scene where all these people were afraid of God and didn't want to hear his voice. Well, it's because, as I said before, his original audience was tempted to abandon Christianity and go back to Judaism, back to the Old Testament law, back to the Mosaic Covenant. But as he said in chapters 9, chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, this law... The Mosaic law cannot perfect the conscience. The only thing that you can get from the law is the terror of judgment. God is a holy God, and this is how he has revealed we are to live. And, And when we see the law and we see how far short we fall, all we can do is expect God's judgment from a holy God. Now, no one here is thinking about converting to Judaism, I assume, Uh, since you're here in a Christian church. So what does this have to do with us? We're not in the same boat, but we are tempted, just like they were, to give up on Christianity or to just go through the motions of Christianity and not take it all that seriously. And we are tempted to just kind of play the game. Paul says in Romans 2 that even Gentiles have the law of God written on their heart. Uh, The Jews were given the law, but the Gentiles have it written on their heart. Uh, All humans have the law of God written on their heart. We have a basic sense of what's right and what's wrong. No one had to teach you that murder was wrong unless you've got some kind of mental disability or warped personality. It's written on our hearts. Jew and Gentile alike cannot keep the law. 
No one can keep the law. We, like the people at Sinai, do not want to hear the voice of God and obey the voice of God. Partly because it makes us feel ashamed because we are not holy. We don't want to hear the voice of God and and we think that we can earn salvation by following the law, by, by following the law to a certain degree. If we're pretty good, you know, moral, generally speaking, like everyone else, that that's good enough. But the law does not justify us. Paul says in Galatians 3, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So none of those people at Sinai were justified by keeping the law. They were condemned by it and they ran from it. Romans 3.20 says, By works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, being good, being moral, checking the box of nice things that you do in life, that cannot save you. The law cannot save. Its purpose is to show us our sin, to show us that we cannot meet the standard of a holy, powerful God that revealed himself at Sinai. It only condemns us. Paul says that it's a tutor to lead us to Christ to teach us that we can't save ourselves because we can't keep the law. And we have to look outside ourselves for salvation. So ask yourself today, why should God let me into heaven? Why should God let you into heaven? And if your answer is, well, because I fill in the blank, because I am a good person, because I go to church, because I help little old ladies across the street, because I have never killed anybody, you've got it all wrong. If the, if the answer you give begins with because I, then you're relying upon your own works, even good works, good things, to save you. The right answer is because Jesus. Why should... God let you into heaven because Jesus died for your sins, because Jesus endured the punishment for your sins on the cross, because Jesus provides forgiveness. In verse 18 it says, You have not come to what may be touched, to a blazing fire of darkness. So he's reminding those Christians, reminding us today as well, that they're not those people under the terrifying old covenant of the law. Christians are not trying to earn their salvation by their works. You can't do it. You need a Savior, and that's what he's reminding them of. If you're going to go back to the old covenant, then you're only going to get terror and judgment. So you can't abandon Jesus. And that brings us to the second point. Christians have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, etc. Now let's begin. We'll just work our way through these three verses. What is Mount Zion? 
You know, you, you read about Mount Zion, and we have some hymns that mention Mount Zion, and uh, maybe you have never really understood what it's referring to, and sometimes it's confusing because the Bible uses that term in different ways. Well, Mount Zion originally was the site of the Jebusite stronghold, which David captured and made his royal residence in the seventh year of his reign. And then he made it into the religious center of his kingdom by installing there the Ark of God. You remember they were bringing the Ark in and, and then somebody, uh, they weren't carrying it correctly and somebody steadied it with their hand and they were struck down because it was, a, it was holy. And then it resided in someone's uh, property for a while until David eventually brought it there to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, which later became Jerusalem. And then Solomon built his temple a little north of Mount Zion, uh, on a hill north of there, and he installed the ark there, of course, and put it in the temple. And so the name Zion was extended to include this further area and became in practice synonymous with Jerusalem. Now, since the tabernacle in Moses' day and the temple were constructed according to the pattern of the sanctuary in heaven, it was revealed to Moses from God, so the temple and city of Jerusalem were earthly copies of God's eternal city, what Revelation calls the new Jerusalem, which will come down to the new heavens and new earth when Jesus returns. So that's the reality, that's the eternal reality, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth, and what we're living in now in the earthly Jerusalem, the, the earthly Mount Zion, is a copy of that. That's the reality. So when we talk about Zion as Christians, we're talking about that eternal city, uh, the, the place where our citizenship resides, we belong to that mountain. We are citizens of Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. And instead of it being a picture of terror like Sinai was to the Old Testament believers there with Moses, it's described here with overwhelming joy. We belong to Mount Zion if we're believers. We're citizens of that city. And when we come into that city, we are with innumerable angels in festal gathering. So you've got the angels dressed up, ready to have a feast, a party, joyful occasion. And verse 23, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So uh, all the believers who have gone on before us, who have died, are there. They're called the firstborn because by faith we're Christians are united to Christ, who is the firstborn par excellence, and we are joint heirs with him. So we're part of the family. And so we're part of that assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled to heaven, and, and we have a relationship with God, the judge of all, who will make all the wrong things right, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. When we go to heaven, we will be made perfect in holiness. And, and if we uh, are are there when Jesus returns, or we'll, be, we'll, be, we'll join those saints in the new heavens and new earth, and we will be made perfect in righteousness as well. 
And he goes on in verse 24, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant, the one that brings joy and healing and forgiveness. And to the sprinkled blood, it's through his blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. When Cain murdered Abel, God said to Cain, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The blood of Abel was crying for vengeance from the ground. But the blood of Jesus, to use the same figure, speaks a better word. It cries out for forgiveness for the children of God. Abel's blood cried out for vindication. Jesus' blood speaks a better word, mercy, forgiveness, and peace. Abel's blood called called out for justice to be satisfied, justice to be served. Jesus' blood cries out that justice has been satisfied and served. On the cross, when he shed his blood, justice was poured out on him for our sin. So Jesus' blood speaks a much better word. Now the question is, why would we refuse or give up on all that Jesus has secured for us? Why would we want to rest in our own morality, which can never be good enough for salvation? Why would we trade something that is temporal, something that could be touched. That's what he's talking about when he says that in verse 18 about Mount Sinai. You, you do not come to something that can be touched. It means it's, it's temporal. It's, 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 it's going to be shaken, as we'll read in a minute. It's not going to last. The old covenant is gone. It's past. If you refuse that, you refuse the new covenant in Jesus, where will you be? Why would we not listen? to the word, the good news, the gospel that Jesus speaks, that God speaks. Well, with this in mind, he tells us a couple of things that we should consider. First, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. God's voice is all through this passage. He spoke at Sinai and the people were afraid as he gave the law. But Jesus' blood speaks a better word. And don't refuse the one who's speaking to us from heaven. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned from them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warned from heaven. He's brought his argument full circle. If you go back to chapter 1, it says this, verse 1, 1, 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, including Moses. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then throughout chapter 1, he describes how much better Jesus is than angels. 
And here's what he says in Hebrews 2, verse 1. It's the same thing he says here in chapter 12. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Are we neglecting our salvation? Are we drifting? Do you have the relationship with Jesus at all? Have you embraced these important eternal things? Or are you more invested in temporal things? Things that don't last. Things that aren't eternal. How much time do we spend watching television or playing games on our computers or our telephones? How much time do we spend watching sports and doing trivial things that really don't matter. And how much of our energies is spent on building an earthly kingdom for ourselves instead of investing in God's kingdom that cannot be shaken? Verse 26. At that time, at Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. There's going to be a day of shaking where all the temporal things are gone, destroyed, and only the eternal lasts. So, verse 28, second thing he tells us to do. First, don't refuse him who is speaking this good news, this gospel. Don't refuse him. Don't drift from it. Secondly, verse 28, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We should be grateful for this kingdom, this eternal kingdom that God has, has allowed us to be a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaking. And out of our gratitude for this indescribable gift, we should offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. See, thanksgiving should lead us to worship. Not just worship like we're doing here on Sunday morning, but all the time. The word worship means to ascribe worth or value to something. We should value Christ and his kingdom above everything else. Nothing should top that. Nothing should be a priority over that. But to always give the Lord worth and value in our lives and to reflect that by the way that we live, the things that we do prioritize with reverence and awe. See, the people at Sinai were not grateful. God had rescued them from slavery. God had given them his law. No other nation had God speaking to them and telling them his law. Only them. Yet what happened? They were always complaining to Moses. We want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt. It was so great in Egypt. They forgot that they were slaves. When we drift, when we aren't serious about our sin, we're going back to Egypt. We're going back to bondage. 
Christ has set us free. Why would we want to do that? We need to have a greater gratitude for what Christ has done and the great sacrifice that he's made on our behalf. And that will fuel our reverence, our worship, and our awe. Uh, it will fuel our service to the Lord and to others. As we see, the things that are eternal and value the things that are eternal more than just the things of this earth. May God grant us grace to be grateful as he brings to mind these wonderful truths and may we give to God our lives in a way that we can acceptably worship him with reverence and awe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Thank you for allowing us to be citizens of your kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. And thank you for the joy that is ours. And may we not lose that joy, we pray. May the joy of salvation always be in our hearts. And may it fuel our worship and service to you. Lord, we pray that you would refine us. You are a consuming fire. We pray, Lord, that you would refine us and make us into the people that you would have us to be. And Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you and doesn't have a covenant relationship with you, we ask that you would draw them to yourself and they cry out to you. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, you said in your word. And I pray that they would know that and they would call upon your name and so worship you with reverence and awe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.